Look at that. Look at that. We're all set up here live from Salt Lake City. This is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we uh, pause and thank you for life and all that you have uh, in store for us because we know that your ways are better than ours and higher than ours and you understand things that we need better than we do. We pray that you'll be with us and help those who are searching for truth, trying to break free from the shackles of bondage in whatever form they come. So uh, be with our volunteers and people who give so much time to keep this going and uh, we just pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe the New Testament description that is given in Jeremiah, where God says he will write his laws upon our hearts in this day, this day he's written them upon our hearts. So because of that, I disbelieve in religious organizations that usurp authority, step in between God and individuals. And uh, all of our shows are really about trying to get... um, Uh, help people become emancipated from the shackles of religion, the shackles of sin, if you want to call sin, sin that way, the shackles of drugs, whatever it is to be free in Christ, to have liberty so that there isn't a captivity, so that there's a freedom that exists in your relationship with Him. And, you know, there's some local churches in, in town that I hear stuff about, And uh, my knee-jerk reaction is to really go after them. I had clips. I had all kinds of stuff against this church. And, uh, but the spirit was just like, you know, leave them to God. Leave them to God. Don't go after them. I'm not going to go after them, but I want to show you something that, I want to read something to you as to what we're trying to fight against. This is a little pamphlet a church gives out that's in this community. And it's, it's, it's their uh, statement of faith what they believe in, and at the end of it, it says, there's, the topic is, final authority for matters of belief and conduct. And then it says, this statement of faith does not exhaust the extent of our beliefs. The Bible itself, as the inspired infallible word of God that speaks with final authority concerning truth, morality, and the conduct of all mankind is the sole and final source for all that we believe. So it says, we believe that the Bible is the final source for all that we believe. And then it says, for the purposes of this church's faith, doctrine, practice, policy, and discipline, this church's board of directors are the final interpretive authority on the Bible's meaning and application. Uh, that's that under the final authority for matters of belief and conduct. They've got a board of directors who say that they are the final uh, interpretive authority on the Bible's meaning and application relative to matters of belief and conduct. And to me, that is just smacks uh, in the face of what God said his New Testament would be when he writes upon the hearts and minds of, of individuals. And so it's that kind of thing that, that uh, we try to speak against and talk about. But I'm more and more stepping back away from the direct attacks because I guess, I mean, the spirit was really strong yesterday. Just don't do it. Don't spend your time with it. You know, you have other things to do. 
Yeah, but I just had to read that one thing and show you. That's what they really think, that they have the interpretive authority as a board. They think, I guess, because they have the interpretive authority in conduct, too, that as a board, their conduct is, you know, they have no beams. They have no motes or beams in their eye. They are holy, perfect men and or women, and they sit on a board, and they have the ability as a board to determine if someone's conduct is unbiblical or not, and if their beliefs are unbiblical or not. And they are the final authority on that stuff. I mean, that is just horrific to me. And I look for the day when that will go away. Next week, just to let you know, we're going to talk briefly in the beginning about ex-Mormon files. That's a ministry that we support. About talking to Mormons, another ministry we support. And about Check My Church which is a new ministry that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the TVAR and much, much more, uh, kind of a potpourri show. So we hope you'll turn in. But tonight we are going to wrap up our conversation on the resurrection. And you know that from the past two weeks, I propose to you, contrary to what this church and others teach, that we are not going to come crawling out of a grave and have these bodies of flesh and bone we are going to have spiritual bodies uh, given to us by God that will be equipped to uh, dwell in heaven. Now, they may have the shape or form or the recognition of a human. I don't know. They're going to be very different, though, than, from what was planted in the grave. Well, we left off at verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15, which is the consummate chapter on the resurrection. And Paul says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It can't do it right? Neither does corruption inherit corruption. So at this point, Paul leaves behind the general discussion on resurrection, and he enters into the final phase of the topic, which is really important, really important. So stay with me. At verse 51, he says, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep What he means by that is die. That's a colloquialism for die. But we shall all be changed. Now, when Paul says, I'm going to show you a mystery, he's saying, look, I'm going to explain something to you that you have not understood before. What he is going to show or explain to them, he's going to describe, um, he's been describing the resurrection of the dead. We've gone through that for two weeks. The whole chapter's aimed at getting to the root of that. But the bride of Christ was also being told by the apostles in that day that Jesus was coming back to get them. They promised them that, Jesus promised them that, to save them from the pending doom that was coming upon uh, Jerusalem and those who had crucified him. And so the mystery Paul is going to explain to them is what's going to happen to those who haven't died if when he comes back to take us, those who are there, what's going to happen to them? As he promised, he's coming back. And so he says, behold, I, Paul, show you, them, then, a mystery. We, we, I, Paul, and you who are receiving this letter at Corinth, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Paul seems to be saying that somehow there's a solution to the fact that when Jesus comes or returns, 
Some of them are not going to die. What's going to happen with their body when that happens? How will they experience receiving the promise of this heavenly body since they haven't died and been in the grave? He's been talking about resurrection of the dead. But what about those who are living when Jesus comes? Why say this? Because they were expecting his return for them while they were still alive. That's why Paul says it. And this is a reasonable mystery that he needs to explain to them. And he gives it to them right here. We shall not all sleep. We shall not all die. Um, but when uh, Jesus returns, he says something else. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, notice the use of we here by Paul. Uh, to me, this, says, this suggests that Paul thought, I might be here too. I could be here with you. If I'm not, I'm not. But he says, whoever's here, we shall all be changed in his letter to the Corinthians alive at that time. In other words, if we're alive when he comes and have not died, we will all experience a shift from the corruptible to the incorruptible. We will all go from flesh and blood and bone to possessing some sort of heavenly spiritual body. Now, note that this letter was given to them then. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. They read this epistle. You know, we've got it 2,000 years later here sitting in our Bibles, and we read it and act like it's happening to us. They trusted Paul and his words to them as an apostle. Imagine if they received this epistle, and they read it, and they said, the apostle Paul, he's writing from, uh, you know, Ephesus or wherever, and he, he's telling us that we're not going to all, if, we're, if we haven't died, we're going to all be changed. That's what he said, okay? And let's say that all of that generation of Christians died. And then their children get up and they read Paul's epistle and they say, but we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. And they say, oh, how, wait a second, I don't get it. He said that to our grandfathers. He said that to our parents. They're all gone. How are we supposed to believe in this? And suppose then the next generation reads it and says, how are we supposed to believe this? You know, we shall not all uh, die, but we shall all be changed. Why did Paul say to our grandparents, we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed when all Christians at that time died and none of them were changed unless it was to them and it did have application to them and them alone. Context allows us to see the reality of this word, folks. And what he wrote, he wrote to them then, and he meant what he wrote. We shall not all die, but we will all be changed. How? What will the change look like? He describes it in the next verse. He says, we shall all be changed, verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. He says this to them to comfort them. So let's work on this. The Greek term translated in the twinkling of an eye, you know, is atomus. And we talked about this at our campus group a while ago. And that means an indivisible portion. That means a microsecond that can't be divided anymore. It's been broken down to the smallest 
uh, portion possible, smallest span of time, boom, that's even uh, not sufficient. You're going to be changed from your corruptible body if you're alive when Jesus comes to the incorruptible body. What do you notice right off the bat first? That there's a change, that it's immediate, that there is nobody to be rising out of any grave for this change. Uh, So the change of living people would experience into their heavenly body would happen instantly. And uh, it was going to be a change of the body that they were in into another type of body. Do you notice that? So the same thing would certainly happen to those that were dead and in the grave. So this is an exception to the term resurrection. I'm not sure that we can call, uh, or maybe we call it the resurrection of the dead versus the resurrection of the twinkling. I don't know. But there is somehow a difference between those who have died and those who are living. So that's one thing. Those who are alive at his coming would change in an indivisible point of time. By the hand of God, he would bestow upon them their body. Now, in the face of this, I can't help but wonder about the creation of heaven and earth and all that in them is. And we hear all sorts of stuff from creationists and from other people. You know, it took God six days, six literal 24-hour days, it took God to do everything he did. And, uh, and other people say, no, it took him six spans of time to do everything he did. And I think he said it and it was done, period. And in an indivisible span of time. And so if all who were alive can be changed from their immortal, from their mortal corrupt bodies instantly into a heavenly body in the twinkling of an eye, um, then he could do anything else in the twinkling of an eye. And he doesn't need time. There's no time required for God the way people want to make that out. I can't fathom how that works, but uh, I I would suggest that that's entirely possible. Um, So anyway... And, it, and just imagine for a second if I decide I'm a futurist and I'm like most of the Christians on earth today and I'm saying, well, I'm waiting for the resurrection to come. I'm waiting for Jesus to come back and all of this stuff to finally happen, right? Well, in that case, we have a billion Christians on earth now. And if we're all alive and Jesus comes back tomorrow like they think he's going to, stupidly, and we're all billion of us are changing the twinkling of an eye, and he can do that with all of us like that. It seems to me he can do anything in the twinkling of an eye, right? So we can get away from the argument on it has to be six 24-hour periods. That, that's what I mean. I just don't even understand the people who push that one. You know, it makes me think God is so way, way, way beyond our meager comprehensions and imaginations. We humanize him and we box him up. And, you know, we say he's powerful and he... He does this and that, but I mean, this is so disrespectful to put it this way, but this guy, this being, this God, forget about it. Just forget about it. You're talking about something we cannot get our hands around. Yet he loves us, and he is our father through our faith in his son. And so that is a God of unbelievable proportions and abilities, And yet, you know, we have people who actually challenge his existence, mock his existence, mock his abilities, mock his ways. Uh, It's it's really reprehensible. Anyway, Paul says, we shall not all die, but we will all be changed in the moment. Twinkling of an eye at the last trump. 
for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we, he says again, shall be changed. That phrase at the last trump is really a Jewish phrase. It goes all the way back to their Old Testament. And I have a quote here from uh, a guy. He helped write the Mishnah. He is, his name is Akiba ben Joseph. He's also known as Rabbi Akiva. And he lived between 50 AD and, and he died 135 AD. And they, this shows that the Jews, some Jews believed in a resurrection. And this is how he describes the resurrection, writing about it way, way, way back then. How shall the holy blessed God raise the dead? We are taught that God has a trumpet a thousand L's long, according to the L of God. This trumpet he shall blow, so that the sound of it shall extend from one extremity of the earth to the other. At the first blast, the earth shall be shaken. At the second, the dust shall be separated. At the third, the bones shall be gathered together. At the fourth, the members shall wax warm. At the fifth, the heads shall be covered with skin. At the sixth, souls shall be rejoined to their bodies. At the seventh, we shall revive and stand clothed. Now, I read that, and I know it's in support of a material, physical resurrection, but this was a Jewish rabbi who was writing, you know, probably in a, a hundred uh, A.D., and do you think he has the insights into what is truth? I don't think so. So just because he proposes a physical resurrection, the only reason I re read this is because he talked about this trumpet a thousand L's long that would raise the dead. In describing the end of the age, Jesus said to Peter, James, and John, and Andrew on the Mount of Olives, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds and from one hand of uh, end of heaven to the other. To the church of Thessalonica, Paul, describing the coming resurrection to them who were concerned about it, just like the believers at Corinth were, listen to what Paul says. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive, again we, and remain unto the coming of the Lord, shall not precede them which are dead. Okay? For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, the voice uh, and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive, he says to them at Thessalonica, we and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another, church at Thessalonica, with these words. These futurist idiot churches get up there and they read this and they say, we're going to be caught up and taken up. Now, come. it was all written to them with the promise that it was happened to them. And Paul assures them this is what's going to happen to us, to we right then. So with these words, Paul affirms some of the substance of the tradition of the sounding trump, that there's going to be this trumpet sounded with a great day. All who are alive after the dead in the ground were raised and resurrected would be caught up in the air and change in the twinkling of an eye. And Paul reiterates at verse 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality, a concept he's repeated several times. And then at verse 54, he says, so when this corruption has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death, is swallowed up in victory. I got to drink some water really quick.
So at the resurrection of the dead, which will begin when Christ returns or when he returned, as I would rather say it, the immediate changing will begin in the resurrection for those who are in the grave. They'll come up. They'll be changed. Those who were alive would be caught up and be changed. And Jesus would have his bride. That is the picture, okay? People are waiting for that in the future. I suggest it happened then. And now every individual, when they die, experience that twinkling of an eye resurrection at their death. They get their heavenly body. They go and enter into the, the kingdom. And they are with God forevermore. So when, when Paul says that then it will be brought to pass that death is swallowed up in victory. He's quoting Isaiah 25, where Isaiah describes for the nation of Israel how the same thing would occur. And Isaiah's words were to them, but like many Old Testament prophecies, they had application for a later date. And the later date was in Paul's age, right around that time when the end was supposed to come. Death is personified here. Death is, is like swallowing people up. It's gaping jaws, grabbing the deceased and departed and holding them in Sheol. Death is grabbing them. And there's no escape from Sheol prior to Christ. Everyone is going to the covered place, some to prison, some to uh, paradise. But Sheol, death, has grabbed them. And that's why the grave had its victory, right? And so death is a metonym for everything that is dying and uh, diseased and something that was once alive, all right? Now, I believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe that if Jesus has had the victory over death, it is a victory over all death. But what I mean by that is the victory is had in spiritual ways. And I'm going to explain that right now. Death cannot reign since Christ has had the victory. Death has not reigned since Christ has had the victory. When we have a funeral for somebody, they are not dead. De they are not going to hell. They're not going to the covered place. They're not going to prison or paradise. They are going to heaven. That hell thing is done with. He has had the victory over the gaping jaws of death that held people bound. So no longer is that possible. It does not rain. It cannot rain because he has had the victory over it. He has had the victory over the law. He's had the victory over sin. The law was nailed to his cross. Stay with me. We've noted in the past where there is no law, this is a law, where there is no law, there is no sin. Cannot be a sin, okay? There has to be a law for there to be an infraction of a law. So if there's no law and you take the laws down, there's no sin. So it appears that all angles that could potentially produce death, because you have to understand death is the result of sin. So it looks like this. You put up a law, you come up with sin, you come up with death. You get rid of the law, there's no sin, there's no death. That is what Jesus has done. We Churches put up laws all over the place, all they are doing is causing their people to be sinners and to think that if they don't obey the law that the church puts up, 
And if the, if the person who's a member of that church believes that if they don't obey it, God's mad at them, that person is making themselves a sinner in God's eyes because they believe that they should follow this thing, but they're not. So the law always creates sin in us. That's why the law was nailed to the cross of Christ. And even Jesus said, you know, I didn't come to erase the law. I came to fulfill it. What that means is he came and he lived it completely so that the whole thing could be nailed to his cross. Therefore, there is no law. Therefore, there is no sin. Therefore, there is no death. Now, people have a really hard time with that. They think there are still laws. They still think that we are under laws before God. And if you don't keep them, you're a sinner. And if you're a sinner, therefore, you're going to experience death. Where? In the second death, lake of fire, where you will burn forever and ever and ever. It's this, this, this thinking that goes on. But if Jesus has had the victory, which the scripture says he has, and if the law was nailed to his cross, which the scripture says it was, then there can't be sin. We use the example all the time. I'm going to use it again. I like the school one because it's easy for me. But in front of a schoolyard, there is a sign and it says 25 miles an hour. Okay? If you blow through there at 30, a cop can get you. And, and that's just the way it is. The posted law makes you a sinner and you are caught and put in jail. It's simple as that. Take down that law. Take down that sign. Get rid of the speed limit by the school. You can go 120 miles an hour through there and they can't ticket you. That, 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 that's why they can come up with designer drugs that are legal until the FDA gets in there and tweaks them until the FDA can make a law against that drug. Until they can do that, that drug is legal. You can take it and you can't be arrested. So the law produces sin and the sin produces death, captivity, thrown in jail, thrown in the grave. So if you believe Jesus has had the victory, then you have to believe there has been a death to the law. There has to be. You're not antinomian. That means you're not lawless. Why? Because in the New Testament, God writes his laws on your heart, on the hearts of individuals. He writes them on every one of us, and therefore there's no frickin' pastor who can tell you what you need to do or be in order to be right with God. You know what you need to do or be to be right with God. He's written his law on your heart and on my heart. That's called subjective Christianity. We don't need the institutions and the men playing God or intermediaries to God. We don't need these little things that I read to you at the beginning. We don't need final authority on matters of conduct. God is our final authority on conduct. You will die without your pastor. You will go to God directly and you will be accountable for the life you lived to God. And he'll say, I wrote my laws on your heart and you will be accountable. Now, people don't like that. So what they say is, I don't want to do that, man. Tell me what I should believe. Put up some laws for me and I can believe them. And what happens when you put the laws up is it makes you a sinner. And there's a couple of ways it works. You know, the one way is, that you drive through that school zone every day and you never go above 24 miles an hour. And with pride, you drive through and you're so happy with yourself because you're a law-abiding citizen. Ooh, you're good. But when that person comes through going 30, slow down, you mother flucker. I obey the law every morning. You should too. And you become a judgmental prick. 
because the law makes us sinners. Every time we put one up, you're going to find a group of people who become arrogant because of the law or they become sinful because of the law. You choose. God knew that. So what Paul says is, listen, we have to die to the law. We have to die to it. And he makes a lot of uh, cases for that. He says, the sting of death is sin. The sting of death is sin, you see. And then he adds, and the strength of sin is the law. Did you know that? That the strength of a sin comes in a law? That all you got to do is implement one and sin becomes super powerful. Honey, I know you like to be out with your friends, but you need to be home by 1032. That's, that's the law. And she comes home at 1034. She's a sinner. She's rebellious. She's broken the law. And uh, she is deserving of death. Punishment, restriction, can't drive the car. Something lost that was once alive is taken away. That's how the law works. And so God knew that. And he forms this garden. He says to Adam and Eve, come on, this is yours. Take to it. Do what you want with it. Name the animals. Have at it. Have babies. And, uh, and by the way, I'm going to put a tree over there. And uh, you can eat of it if you want. I don't want you to. In fact, don't do it. Because when you do, you'll surely die. The strength of sin is the law. He gave them a law. Don't eat of that tree. What did they do? Should we eat of it? Should we not? They ate of it. They died. They died physically. They died spiritually. They died in their soul. There was death. The strength of sin is the law. And the result of the law is sin. And the result of sin is death. We can't get through that through our heads as Christians. We're too afraid. We're too afraid to, to say that. The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. In order for death to lose its sting, folks, the law has to be put away. There can't be a law hovering over our heads. If there is, we're all screwed. You, got, you understand that? Because no one can keep the law. James and Galat the writer of Galatians, Paul, says really clearly, you cannot keep all of the law except one part. If you break one part of it, you're guilty of the whole thing. The whole law comes at one. You're either going to be holy before God by having obeyed everything perfectly that he wants, and that's why he gave the law to show you we need a, a Messiah because we can't do it. You either obey the whole thing perfectly and you screw up in one point. You're guilty of it all, right? You steal a loaf of bread when you're hungry at 30 from a baker. You've committed fornication with your neighbor's wife. You've killed. You've stolen. You've had done all the 10 and you've done the rest of the law. You are guilty of it because God doesn't work on a piecemeal basis. You're either holy before him by virtue of your righteousness or you are holy before him by virtue of his son's righteousness which is comes by faith so when you have a religion and a church that says you need to yes you've been you've been saved and you're a christian but you need to and they put up those laws boom 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 sinner 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 all over again and you're screwed and so but churches do that because it's a revolving door. 
if they can get you feeling bad about failing in something, you're going to come back to the source that gave you the instructions to let them make you feel better about it, and then you just keep coming back and back for more and more. Jesus got rid of all of that by getting rid of the law. So, if Jesus hadn't, then sin still reigns. And if sin still reigns, death still reigns. And if death still reigns, then the resurrection's stupid and meaningless. We're all still going to hell, going to Sheol, right? The scripture says we're all resurrected. That's a total victory over physical death. I suggest to you that there's a total victory over all death after this life. Let me read you a, pass, a few passages of scripture if you think I'm off when it comes to the law. Paul said in Romans 7, 8, For without the law, sin is dead. You want to get rid of sin in your life? Get rid of the law. That's as simple as that. You just get rid of it. So you read the Old Testament that you shouldn't be a drunkard. And you're a drunkard. So you want to get rid of that sin in your life? Get rid of that, that law that says being drunkard is a sin. You throw it out. You just keep getting drunk. And you say to God, you know, I really don't like this. Your spirit tells me it's not good for me. I need your help to overcome it. I know you've forgiven me for it, but strengthen me in it. I will. I'll send you my spirit. You just keep, you just keep trusting me. These things will come. Don't worry. Trust me. You put up the law. It's wrong to get, be a drunkard. Let's sign this form that you'll never drink if you're serving here in the church. You put up a law. You've created sin. You've created death. You let somebody through Christ, addressed through the laws that God writes on their heart where they are. You're an adulterer. You're banging the dog next door, the, 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 the Irish wolfhound. That's your thing, man, Irish wolfhound sex. Yes, you can't stop. The pastor says, you aren't allowed in this building, you Irish wolfhound poker. But God says, listen, man, God says, I'll work with you. Don't, don't put up that law not to, not to rape the wolfhounds. Don't put that up, brother, because once you put that up, you're breaking it every time you do it, and you're dying. So why don't you trust that Jesus put the wolfhound sex on the cross, and he took care of it, and he is the one who totally absorbed that, and now you look to him in faith, and now you say, you help me, Jesus. And that's when the freedom comes. The religions don't want you to understand this. They don't understand it themselves. They just keep reading this damn book and throwing up all kinds of laws and rules. Yes, you've been saved by grace. Glory be. But now you better pay your tithes. God expects a healthy, cheerful 10% giver. Freaking idiots. Paul says in Romans 8.20, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. Free from the law of sin and death. Law, sin, death. Do you get it? First John, listen to this. Whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Get rid of the law. Does Paul ever say get rid of the law? Well, let's read on. For the law was given by Moses but grace and truth by Jesus Christ. Listen to what we read Paul say in Colossians 2.13. 
You, being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, he's quickened together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances which were against us. That's the law, which was contrary to us. Took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. He has spoiled principalities and powers. He's made a show of them openly, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. Thank God, Paul added, wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. I didn't make that up. Paul says it. Dead to the law. Well, that doesn't mean that. It means that. Dead to it. I do not live by laws. I do not live by any laws. I live by the law God writes on my heart to love others. Now, I am responsible for that one. And to break that one is sin. To know for him, James says, for those who know to do good and do not do it to him, it is sin. When God tells me on my heart, you should obey the speed limit in this area, Sean. You should go slow. There's kids in this area. There's no posted sign. I'm going to go slow because I care about hitting one of them. That's how that's supposed to work. I will not live by a law. I don't care what it is. I'm going to live by the law that God puts on my heart which is superior to any other law that a church or a government can give me. That's why I would call myself a Christian anarchist. There's no arche between me and God. He's my arche. His spirit's in my heart, tells me how to live and how to be. I'm responsible for how I respond to that. And I stand before him with that responsibility. Yes, it's hard. Yes, there are consequences for the decisions, but no way in hell am I going back under a system of laws. Man, when that comes up, I find myself one judgmental prick or one big rebel, because that's what the law does, right? Paul added Romans 7, 6, but now we are delivered from the law. And being dead, wherein we were held, we should now serve in newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. These, these stupid churches want to put the Ten Commandments up in schools. It's ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. That's just religion. Paul says right there, not in the oldness of the letter. We don't need that. We have the spirit. Galatians 2.19. Listen to this one. For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. We started off as a ministry to Mormons. Why? Because I realized when I came out of Mormonism but knew Christ, they were under the burden of law. They didn't even know it. And they thought that they are able to obey 85% of the laws but skip 15% of them and they're okay with God. Wink, wink. He gets it. God says, you live by the law, you're judged by the law. Christians say, forget law. At least they should. But they don't. They keep putting them up in their churches, becoming the authority over everything. It's really interesting. <coughs> well, how much time do we have? Okay, I'm almost, I'll wrap it up. Paul himself is an apostle. He says, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, where he writes on the heart. I delight in that. But I see another law in my members, hands, feet, mouth, ears, tongue, whatever, 
warring against the law in my mind, in my heart. The, the, my flesh wars against what I know, right? And brings me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. My mouth, eyes, ears, hands, flesh, will, other parts, will always sin. They want to sin. That's what, they're, that's what they do. That's their job, is to sin. Paul says, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, what's inside of me. Me too. I love that law, right? And then he says, O wretched man that I am, what am I going to do? My inward man delights in his love and his law, but my external flesh is always trying to sin. He says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death, which is the result of sin? which is the result of law. And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he makes a declaration. He makes an assessment of his life. He says, so then with the mind, heart, I myself serve the law of God. That's what I do. The morning as I'm driving, I'm praying, I'm reading the scripture. With the mind, I am serving the law of God. I'm repenting for sins. I'm, I'm asking him to help me. When I say sins, what I mean by that is my proclivities in my flesh. Help me grow in the spirit. I'm talking to him openly all about it, right? So with the mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And the hottie walks in in front of me and my flesh and members start going crazy again. That's what Paul says he does. His mind serves the law of the inward man, but his flesh serves the law of sin. There's no getting around that. None. So when we put up things to mortify and correct the flesh, we're using fleshly means to restrict them, and it, all it is is a form of legalism or law which will only produce sin, which will only produce death. So... After having said all of this, Paul goes on and he ends the chapter with saying, listen, all of these things about the resurrection abound in the work of the Lord so that your labor is not in vain. And I suggest to you as the final note for tonight on the resurrection before I answer an off-air question, that the difference between those who haven't received Christ and those who have those who have received Christ and those who do love the law of the inward man and are his sons and daughters, the difference between those people is going to be in the resurrection. It's not going to be in a mansion you're going to live in. It's not going to be in crowns you're going to wear. It's going to be in the resurrected heavenly body God gives you that you'll abide in for eternity. I have a bunch of other teachings that we've done on that. But that is why Paul wraps up the whole chapter on resurrection saying, listen, go after and serve the Lord knowing that your labor's not in vain. He's just been talking all about resurrection. So he ties the labors we do for God from the heart to the resurrection that we will receive. And I would just challenge you, I don't think we're going to be rewarded in the resurrection for our physical deeds and things. I think it's all spiritual. And so I would challenge you to Consider some of the things we've talked about tonight. If you are living under the law, I don't care what it is, you're in bondage and you are going to sin against that law, either by rebelling against it or by rebelling against, by judging people who break it. it. One way or another, you will be a sinner because of that law. And then in that sin, 
you experience this death, which Jesus overcame for you. That's not how it should be. You should be living in Christ, abounding in Christ by the liberty and freedom that he gives you because he took care of the law and you're free. So if someone asked me, are there any laws besides loving our neighbor as ourself? I would say no. Now that covers everything, doesn't it? That's another subject. That's another thing that we'd have to talk about. But in terms of the things printed in ink and print, carved in stone and put on posters and on walls, forget about it. We have an off-air question. It's from Patrick Layerley. What about the people coming out of the graves physically and seen of many in one of the gospel accounts? Well, we talked about that, Patrick. When Jesus resurrected and those who came out of the graves physically, that was all part of a physical resurrection for a physical economy, the nation of Israel. They were under the physical material laws and they came up like that and were seen of many. The only way people would be able to see that they had rose from the grave would for them to be in physical bodies. That includes Jesus. So they had a physical body when they come, came forward. But when they went to heaven, those physical bodies were not their resurrected bodies. All it says is they came forth from the grave. We say that's their heavenly body. No, 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 no. Bone, flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So somewhere the bodies that they were shown the people around that they came from the grave were heavenly, given a heavenly body, and that's what they inhabit the heavens in. So I hope that helps Patrick L. And with that, just remember next week we are going to uh, have a good show, I think. I've, I've already been working on it, and uh, we're going to be talking about some things that are really important to the ministry and things going on that you're going to want to know. So tune in with us here on Heart of the Matter. See you then.